Here's a joke I heard around 15 years ago when I was directing a documentary. What's the difference between a cinematographer and God? The answer? God doesn't think he's a cinematographer. I don't know how much meaning that joke has for today's episode, but I've only heard it told with the pronoun he. This is Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers, recording from my basement in Montclair, New Jersey. On a podcast, this is where we get down to business. That's my guest, Kirsten Johnson, a veteran cinematographer who's worked on celebrated documentaries such as Derrida about the French philosopher, Fahrenheit 9-11 about the U.S. and Iraq, and Citizen Four about Edward Snowden and other whistleblowers. Now Kirsten Johnson has directed her own film called Camera Person. It's a kind of memoir that's compiled from 25 years of footage that she recorded mainly for other directors and some for herself. Her filming takes place all over the world, often in conflict zones or their aftermath, in the Balkans, Afghanistan, Darfur, and Liberia. She also weaves in family footage of her young twins Felix and Viva, and her late mother Catherine, when she was afflicted with Alzheimer's. The film is a meditation on the power of documentary to preserve time and memory. You can also sense Kirsten raising questions about documentary, the impact it has for the person being filmed and for the camera person. In the film, Kirsten holds back from narration. The images speak eloquently on their own, but in conversation, she has a lot to say. You know, like we talk about these things like ethical dilemmas and like, will you do the right thing or will you do the wrong thing? It is so not that simple. This interview was recorded in May at the Montclair Film Festival's Audible Lounge. Kirsten grew up in Seattle, went to college at Brown, then spent time in West Africa. I asked about those early days and what drew her to cinematography. The truth is that I um, have a, my mother was a photographer um, and she was one of those people who was always like, stop the car, I see something. And she would jump out and we'd all be frustrated. Um, But I do think that, you know, now retrospectively, the fact that she had a camera in her hands often was significant to me. And she was a very visual person. But I got drawn to West Africa and West African filmmaking because I was really interested in questions of race. I had been a kid in the 1970s in the United States and um, raised in this very uh, religious context that uh, made me question a lot about the world. Um, So when I discovered the films of Usman Semben, I really wanted to meet him. It was just one of those odd things and I literally went to Dakar and knocked on his door. And then I spent two years living in Senegal. And so for those people yeah, who don't know yeah. who Semben is, describe what his work is. Well, um, he literally is actually the first black African novelist. He wrote a great novel called God's Bits of Wood. And then he went on to become the first narrative feature filmmaker um, in you know, sort of on the African continent. And his work is really visual, really 
sly, a lot of um, commentary about uh, the sort of things pre people pretend to be in society versus the things they really are. So it's really cheeky. It's really cheeky filmmaking in lots of ways. Um, so you were drawn to his filmmaking and that drew you to West Africa? It drew me to West Africa and then... Um, and did you meet him? I did meet him. And he said, if you're here in two years, you can work on a film of mine. So I stayed. Uh, and along the way, I met this great uh, photographer who said, you know, there's this free French f film school. Maybe you could get into that. And so I went to Paris and I got told there is no way that you're gonna get into this school if you try, in the directing department, you better try a technical department. And um, so that's why I chose the image department, the cinematography department, and I loved holding that camera. It was just a, it was just a, uh, yeah. Now, the title of your film, Camera Person, evokes the sense in which we're used to hearing the word cameraman. Yes, we are. Uh, you know, I take it that's deliberate. It's quite deliberate in, on many levels. I mean, w whenever I film, literally once a day, whenever I film, someone accidentally calls me cameraman. So there is a real sense of like, that's how ubiquitous the term is. But it was also for me, one, it's sort of the working class name. It's like the, I'm a camera person is not, I'm a cinematographer, I'm a DOP, I'm a director of photography, I place myself in this place. And for me, it really is, it's just, it's like a, it's a, it's a job of labor. I love the physicality of the job, so it was that for me. And then, honestly, I, I now have taken to saying that, that images are an ongoing series of relationships. Images exist uh, because of the people behind the camera, the people in front of the camera, and because the camera is there. So there's this great simplicity to me in the title camera person because it basically says everything about this set of relationships. Did, it, did you stand out as a, as a woman right away in school doing cinematography? No. In, 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 at the school in France, it was half and half. Um, and uh, I, I certainly have always stood out on a certain level because I'm six feet two. Um, so I, as a woman, being as tall as I am, I've always been a bit of a standout, um, but but and certainly in France I was. Um, but no, there's a real sense of some great um, camera people, French women like Agnès Godard, um, who who were around Caroline Champetier. There were people who were around, and it felt very possible to be a camera person. Do you felt like, Do you feel there were more role models like that in France than in the U.S.? You know, the thing is, I never really thought about the idea of having a role model. I already felt like I was inventing my life. Um, you know, the act for me to go and live in Senegal was so far off the charts in terms of my family that hadn't traveled much. I didn't never spoken another language besides English. Um, and I was incredibly naive when I went to Senegal. I didn't know that it was a Muslim country. I didn't know anybody there. I, so, you know, I, I did this great, that was my greatest leap. And everything after that felt fairly like, uh, that's, a, that's an easy choice compared to what you just pulled off. You know, so, yeah, it didn't feel, it didn't feel like I needed a role model. Now, retrospectively, I realize a few more would have been great, but yeah. 
I think you told me the earliest footage in camera person is from the movie Derrida, yeah. uh, where <clears throat> directed by Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, yeah. uh, following the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. How did you get into that project? Well, um, you know, I recently re-saw it with Amy for the first time in many years at Full Frame, and she was telling me a few things, you know, in that Q&A, I learned all kinds of things about the film I didn't know, but basically, apparently she had a grant from the American Embassy that stipulated that she needed to hire certain people in France, and so I was an obligatory hire for her, um, and she came, <laughs> she had to hire someone from the French film school, and so she came, and I remember she asked for someone who was bilingual, and I was it. Um, and she was sort of shocked to find that I was American. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't know that before? No, I had no idea, like, that I was not hired for my delightful personality and my talent, but sadly I was, a, yeah, an obligation. So what was that project like for you? What were, that was, like, yeah, an I mean, early big project? What were you learning? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it was an incredible experience because Derrida had been someone who did not want to be photographed, did not want to be filmed, and he was very ambivalent about the project in general. He didn't sign his release with Amy for years. Um, and I was completely intimidated by him. He, you know, he was a powerful man in many ways, and... Um, so right away, I was really trying to sort of prove to him that I had a brain and I was all very chatty. And um, at one point, we were driving with him into the city and I, I couldn't be filming, but so I was talking, I was sitting in the front seat talking away with him and we got out of the car and Amy was just like, not with the talking, like it, that needs to stop. Um, and I remember just being so shocked that she, she, you know, she didn't think that I had been, you know, so charming with him and all of this. And then the next, you know, like the next time we shot with him, we were in his house and he was trying to pack for a trip and trying to write something. And he was very frustrated with having us there. And he said, um, you know, you have to leave. And Amy uh, was begging him, you know, that we needed to stay. And he said, listen, if Kirsten does not say a word, she can stay with the camera. And I was like, I was like, wow, I really must have been talking a lot. <laughs> not only be chewed out by my director, but by the subject. Um, and so I stayed in his house um, for about eight hours by myself. And I discovered what it was to show the way you think through the image. And I just became completely fascinated by what I learned about him through watching him and not through talking with him. And that was, I, I really feel like that was the moment that I said, oh, I love doing this. Um, and such an odd privilege to be in someone's home, someone of that stature, such a brilliant person, to just watch him think and move around in his house and have an excuse to do that and a reason to be there. Um, so that was sort of a, you know, big turning point. Was there a point to which you felt like cinematography is what I want to be focusing on and well, no, I'll it's one of those cl classic cases where you keep doing the thing while dreaming you're going to do the other thing. And I remember learning that um, Maurice Piala, who's just this great French filmmaker, always wanted to be a painter. And I was just like, why would he ever want to be a painter? He's such a great director. Um, and and then I remember at a certain point being like, oh, maybe maybe I am a good cinematographer because I'm dreaming of being a director. You know, like you you sort of like it's less. 
you you're just you're just doing it with this real um, you're just open and loose because there's not as much riding on it in a certain kind of way um, and I felt like I was learning about filmmaking and I just kept loving it I kept you know sort of getting these outrageous offers do you want to come to Brazil with me do you want to you know film Jacques Derrida do you you know and it's like when was I going to say no it was just it was like kind of incredible to me that people were asking me to do these things particularly since I barely knew how to film <laughs> really uh, let me ask you about a couple of the directors whose uh, names come up uh, with your film. The first one I want to ask you about is Michael Moore. Now, you worked a little bit on Fahrenheit 9-11. Yeah. You're not a principal camera person, but you... Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, well, I came in when they... Much of the film had been shot, and they really knew what they were interested in. And um, so we went to Washington, D.C., and filmed the scene in the film where Michael's standing on the corner sort of going after Congress people, asking them if they're willing to send their kids to Iraq. And it was literally Congress people were running away from us. They would see us on the corner and run away from Michael. And I remember him saying, ah, oh, this is what I used to feel like in high school. And I, and it was such a revelation to me because I, I all of a sudden I was like, oh, he is comfortable with not being liked. Hmm. And that is part of his power as a filmmaker. But at the time it felt really quite um, intimidating and scary to be filming there in Washington, D.C. so shortly after 9-11 in terms of, not literally in terms of time, but in terms of the very few people had publicly critiqued Bush at that point. Um, and so it, it felt like a almost, you know, there's like a sort of an air of you're being unpatriotic if you would question Bush at that moment in history, which was really interesting um, how rapidly that shifted. So was that a different kind of filmmaking than you never done before, kind of being I, an I mean, antagonist? I started, yeah, I mean, being an antagonist, yes, because I mean, in many ways, what I love is to love the people that I'm filming, to create intimacy, to create trust, to open people up, and this was, you know, sort of going after people with a camera in a certain kind of way, and I remember we were going to film the Saudi Arabian embassy, and we were driving in the van and Michael said, turn on, we were in the van and parking and he said, turn on the camera now. And I was like, why? There's nothing to film. And he's like, you know, when, when we are filming this way, you never know when it's going to happen or what it is. But we are, we are going towards things people don't want us going towards. So something will happen before you expect it. So turn it on now. And he was totally right. Police cars started pulling up, you know, as we were parking the car. So this really interesting thing of like the sort of the secret service police cars were pulling up on us just as we were pulling into the parking place across from the Saudi embassy. And those shots are in the movie and they're sort of, you know, they're like, I'm searching for focus and I'm trying to get the policeman. And, and it has this energy that's not it comes out of the not perfect shooting. It comes out of the like, oh, I'm filming it out of the window as the door's opening and I'm, you know, so it, it has this whole other purpose and meaning. And he really taught me things like, you know, you just, you keep letting it roll. And, uh, you know, I, I teach now at NYU and I have this student, Nanfu Wang, who made this incredible film called Hooligan Sparrow. And I got this email from her when she, you know, was in China making her film. And she said, I did just, just what you told me you did with Michael Moore, where you don't stop rolling when the police come. And I was just like, 
but I wasn't in China. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very gutsy film. Who oh, it's amazing film. The, the, so you use, you quote a sequence in camera person from your shooting on Fahrenheit 9-11. And I actually haven't seen Fahrenheit 9-11 recent enough to remember if that's a scene that's in the film or if you're... He's in it very briefly. Yeah, so... But your, your quote, the sequence you're quoting is taken from outtakes of a character yeah, who we see in the film. Yeah, it's basically an extension of the scene. There's the middle of the scene is in Fahrenheit 9-11 and it sort of opens it up where... You know, the Marine is talking about... This is, a, this is a Marine who is critical of the war. Yeah, he's not going to return to Iraq. And so he, he basically sets up and talks about um, the way in which, as a soldier, you're not allowed to talk to the media and basically explains to Michael the level of risk he is taking to be talking to us and basically saying, I might go to prison because of talking to you. Um, and... For me, that setup, so in Michael's film, you just see that, you know, he doesn't believe in the war in Iraq and he's not going back. But so sort of giving the opening of it, saying the risk that he is taking to let us film him. And then I extend the shot to the end where he's biting his lip and you really see his fear and his bravery. Um, and that was cut out of Michael's film. So let me ask you about a second director, uh, which is Laura Poitras. Um, so Laura Poitras had made two films. Her second film was really Breakthrough that was nominated for an Academy Award called My Country, My Country, that she filmed in Iraq largely by herself, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then the film after My Country, My Country is called The Oath, and she's filming in Yemen, and she's filming on, uh, in Guantanamo Bay. And, and you are the camera person on, on that film. How did you come together with Laura? Well, actually, Laura was in Yemen, and when she realized there was a possibility of um, going to Guantanamo to film, film there while the trial of Salem Hamdan was going on, she knew there would never be a chance of being able to film inside the courtroom. Um, but she just wondered if there might be something that someone could film and she called me and she said, you know, she'd been given my name, we'd never met. And she said, um, I'm really interested in sending you with a camera to Guantanamo, but you might not be able to shoot anything. I, I might just be sending you to sit in the trial. Do you want to go? And I was like, yes, I really want to go. Um, and I said, that's really interesting that I might not be, I might not be allowed to shoot anything. Like we could maybe really do something interesting with that. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, do you know the work of Trevor Pagelin? Um, and she didn't at the time. And I said, Trevor Pagelin's this incredible artist who learned about um, military black sites in the desert in the United States and went to the edge of the black sites um, and photographed them with this really long lens and does these beautiful abstract photos um, of locations that are classified locations in the United States. And I said, maybe we can do something like that. Um, and in fact, I ended up doing something like that, which was um, basically I had a military minder with me all the time when I was shooting. And that person would stand there and say, you can't shoot that, and you can't shoot that, and you can't shoot that. So then I would just line up my frame to go inside the negative space of what he had told me I couldn't shoot. So I started doing these really strange, odd compositions um, that grew out of the constraints of what I couldn't shoot. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and and then that led to a deeper... Well, uh, I mean, what was so interesting with the relationship with Laura was that we went first for the pretrial hearings, and I did that sort of odd shooting, and then I did a lot more conventional coverage and wide shots and pans, because, you know, I'd never worked with her before, and I didn't know what she was interested in. And she did this remarkable thing of looking at all of the footage that I'd shot, and I, often when I shoot, Sometimes there'll just be something that I'm so compelled by that I shoot it even though I can't imagine how it would be relevant to the film. It might, you know, whatever, some reflection in a puddle or something. But I'm just, <gasps> it's so beautiful to me. I have to film it. I sort of do it for myself and think, well, it'll never be in the movie, but, you know, it's two minutes. Um, and Maybe someday I'll make a movie of all my outtakes. Exactly. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Exactly. Sadly, I didn't use any of those shots. But she she looked at the footage and she called out every single one of them and she said, do more of those. Mm-hmm. So I was like, we are simpatico. And we were. So there's a scene in Camera Person where you and Laura are in a car in Yemen uh, and you're trying to film uh, a mosque. Can you describe what Oh, yeah, no, we were actually trying to film the prison. The prison. The prison um, where all the al-Qaeda suspects were held, and it was completely nerve-wracking because um, basically we had been told if we were caught filming, we would probably be put into jail. So we were... We had the camera mounted on a suction inside of the car, a suction cup on the inside of the car, and I had been told by the driver, like, whatever you do, don't touch the camera when we pull up to the prison. So, of course, we end up being able to pull up much closer than I thought, so I'd, I'd zoomed the camera in too much, so I wasn't getting the shot I needed, and we... You know, I had to get the shot. Like that's the point of being there. So I. So in the scene, we hear like the camera is just looking outside the car, but we can hear in the background a conversation taking place between you and Laura and your driver. That's all about how close can we get? Uh, uh, your driver giving you cautions. Can you describe what your relationship was to that driver? Because yeah. he's taking a certain amount of risks. Totally. But he he. From the sound of his voice, he feels like he's game to to do yeah. it. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, um, Laura had cultivated a couple of remarkable relationships in Yemen with really great journalists. And, um, you know, they were people who were uh, critical of the government, critical of the President Saleh. And, um, you know, they were completely invested and interested in Laura's film and so they were trying to help us figure out how we could take the risks we wanted to take, which is often the case um, with you know people who we sometimes call producers, sometimes call fixers, but local people who um, know the politics intensely and yet may not have the capacity to um, make the work because they have to stay. So you know, I've encountered this a number of times where you have journalists who are doing crazy things like driving a car for you, but they know a world more than you do about the politics of the situation. But because they can be traced to like, you know, sort of if he were to tell that story, he could be traced and he could be in prison. But if we tell it and nobody ever knows he worked with us, he gets the word out through us. So a lot of times you have like drivers who are brilliant journalists working with you. So they're really collaborators and often don't get the credit they deserve. In Laura's case, 
you know, people get producer's credits because uh, she's really great at acknowledging everybody's uh, role. And so he was taking the risk. He was taking, the, he, I remember him saying after everything happened, he was like, you guys would have only been in prison for a week. I would have been in prison a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the scene that we see in Camera Person, uh, there's all this talk about, we've got to do this, do it fast so we don't get caught, do it fast so we don't get caught. And then we got caught. Yeah, and we got caught because of me because I hadn't because I had to touch the camera, and I was like, tr- I thought I was doing a great job of like faking it. I was like, turn- I was turned around talking to Laura, and I was like moving my hand, and I touched the you know the the button, you know I touched the lens to pull it back, and I thought no one had seen me, but of course there were people all around the car who you know were working, you know they weren't soldiers in uniform but they were surveilling us and we were immediately caught and pulled over and in the movie it just cuts there you've been pulled over the camera goes off because now you really are turning the camera off and you move on to something else in camera person can you fill in what happened oh yes i can um yeah i mean the whole the whole premise of camera person in some ways is it's got to be in the footage right i can't tell you the story of what happened after the footage turns off but what happened but is, on a podcast on a podcast this is where we get down to business yes i so so you know the soldier is calling us to pull over and i it, the sh- the camera we were shooting on had tapes at the time. So I'm like reaching my hand back and I'm like, it's cool, I'm with Laura Poitras. Like she knows what to do in an emergency. Like she'll hand me a tape, I can swap out a tape. So I'm like, got my hand back there and I realize like she does, she's not doing anything. I'm like, Laura, the, a tape, a tape, like hand me a tape. So she hands me a tape, I you know, I pull out the tape we've been shooting on, put that tape in while I'm like trying to distract the soldier. Um, and, you know, there's a translation going on. He can sort of speak some English, and we're talking. And he's like, show me the tape. Show me what you've been filming. I want to see if you're filming the outside of the prison or not. So I push play, and I'm like, oh, my God. Laura had handed me a tape that we'd shot the night before. So The night before. The night before. At night. That night. This meeting, is daytime. It is daytime. So... It's playing, and I'm smiling at the soldier, and he says, that's a very unusual camera that you have. And I say, yes, isn't it? It can make daytime look like nighttime. And then I just smiled at him, (laughs) and he had this great twinkle in his eye, and he was like, I'm going to let you go because you have such an interesting camera. And I said, I would really appreciate that. And we got in the car and went, And I was like, Laura, why'd you hand me that tape? We'll be back in a minute with more of Kirsten Johnson talking about camera person. Mark your calendars for the 7th annual Doc NYC Festival, America's largest documentary festival, taking place November 10th to 17th in New York City. I serve as the artistic director You can choose from over 100 feature documentaries covering true crime, music, sports, activism, and more. One highlight is the Doc NYC Shortlist, where we pick 15 of the strongest documentaries that we expect will be contenders in award season. Most screenings are followed by a Q&A with a filmmaker or special guests. If you make documentaries or would like to, don't miss the concurrent sessions of Doc NYC Pro Eight days of panels, masterclasses, and happy hours, 
where you can meet leading industry players and gain their insights. To learn more about getting a pass or tickets, go to docnyc.net. And now, back to our conversation with Kirsten Johnson. There's a scene in Camera Person. Spoiler number two. You're filming little kids as they play with an axe. I don't know. Maybe this kid is five years old. I'm going to go with two. Two? Yeah. Um, And he's got an axe and he's chopping at wood or trying to. The older brother, yeah. And then the two year old is there, yeah. And you're observing this, and behind the camera, you can hear your voice express some concern. Audible gasps. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you even say, oh, God. Yeah, I think I say, oh, Jesus. And there's that moment, like, as a camera person, like, should you observe this? Should you take the sharp axe out of the hand of the two-year-old? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, it does end well. No child is injured in the making of this scene. Um, But for me, it was like the perfect scene to include because I think you can see in almost second-to-second way how I am thinking and sort of like, oh my God, this isn't happening. Okay, wait, no, the kid's got control. No, oh my God. You know, like it just, it goes back and forth and you see me like my brain sort of slowly figuring it out through the lens. And um, for me, it's a really strong scene in conveying to the audience, you know, like we talk about these things like ethical dilemmas and like, will you do the right thing or will you do the wrong thing? It is so not that simple. And it is not that simple in a moment-to-moment basis. And so, so that you may be doing something that you think is, you know, borderline noble, and in a second it can turn into a total horror show. And so how to sort of, you know, walk the edge of that axe as it were, right? Um, it's, it's really the dilemma one has as a camera person. And I, 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 I love the scene because it really shows like, you know, if it, if it had not ended well, if that kid had, you know, chopped himself in the face, the fact that everyone would have widely condemned me and I would have widely condemned myself for filming at that time instead of pulling the ax out of the kid's hand, right? Seems like in your career, you're you're often putting yourself in different countries, in places of conflict, in places where the inequality contrasts between the resources that you're bringing as a filmmaker and the people who you're filming are stark. Um, so it seems to me like you have a lot of time and examples to be thinking about this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, stark is a great word. I often think of the word obscene. You know, like I'm literally there with a camera that's worth $60,000 filming someone who has nothing to eat. And that can be just an excruciating experience and just the, you know, sort of surreal absurdity of it, uh, the wrongness of it. All of that is sort of constantly at play in my mind. Now, I mean, I guess the, the, the pat answer to that is, well, you have a mission there to take back images of this and hopefully uh, do some good in the world with, uh, with those images. Does that feel right? Well, I mean, 
so for me, at this point in my career, having done it early on in my career, I think that I could say to myself, um, wow, that didn't feel comfortable, but hopefully this film will change something or do something. And then over time, what I've come to realize, it's like it's not a one-to-one relationship like that. And it may even be that a film you know, ha- may, has a remarkable impact, say like The Invisible War has a remarkable impact, but it may also be that um, the people with whom you filmed uh, were really put at risk, really suffered, really regret being a part of the film, feel like they were exploited. Um, all of those things can also happen even if the film ends up um, being a part of a shift in a dynamic that will affect the problems, the fa- you know, whoever was facing at the moment you were filming them. Um, so, you know, one of the things I said to myself at a certain point in my career is like, okay, what I can do is behave decently in the present and, um, you know, behave in a way that people feel respected while I film them. Well, turns out you can't even do that consistently. In fact, you're, you're often just thrust into these insane situations. And a story I often tell happened in Rwanda um, where we were, we were driving in this valley and suddenly we hear the sound of a woman screaming. And we look across the valley and we can see people carrying a woman on a stretcher. And, you know, we're making this film 10 years after the genocide. It's a lot about the lack of infrastructure in the country, but mostly about the way the lives of women have changed because of the genocide. And... I remember, you know, uh, looking at the director and I saw the look on her face and I, I sort of said, are we going to film them or are we going to help them? And she said, we're going to film them and then we're going to help them. And then it was my job to figure out, okay, what's the, what's the least damaging way to do this? Um, and I certainly could have said, no, let's just go and help them. That was an option. Um, but I said, okay, here's what we gotta do. We gotta drive past them, get to the top of the hill so I have time to get around to the back of the car, pull the camera out, get a battery on it, get it up and running, and then they will be walking up the hill towards us. I'll be able to get a wide shot of the valley and then up they'll come and I'll be able to see them in close up and then they can put down the stretcher and we can put the woman in the car. Okay, sounds good, but what does that mean? This, you know, white car, not unlike the UN white cars that drove by people while the genocide is happening, full of white people, uh, with the exception of the sound man, Wellington Buller, we drive past these people, um, get to the top of the hill, I do exactly what I said I would do, and I see the look in the people's eyes, the people who turn out to have been carrying this woman for seven hours. Can you imagine? You've been carrying a woman on a stretcher for seven hours. A she's car- pregnant. She's, she's pregnant. A car full of white people drive by you and then get out their camera and film you? I mean, I can't even tell you. The look in these people's eyes was just, you know, hatred, uh, shock. Uh, you know, like, I can project all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, then... We put the woman in the car. We drove her to the hospital. She named the baby after the driver. Uh, But, you know, the guys who carried the woman, like, we left them on the side of the road because there wasn't room in the car. And, you know, where is that on the ethical spectrum? And, of course, shot was not used in the movie. So it's complicated. It's a little complicated, yeah. Camera person, you were... 
said you'd set out to make a different film that led to Camera Person. All yeah. Right? Yeah, I had gone to Afghanistan in 2009 and shot there for a couple of years, um, focusing on two teenagers, one of whom was a young woman. And she had been really interested in working on the film, was very complicit and loved it. And then when I finished the edit, sort of eight months of editing, I showed it to her and she said, I'm really sorry, I can't be in this movie. And it was like, you know, my editor and I were Two years devastated. of your life. Yeah. yeah, at that point it was three years of my life. Um, and Amanda Laws, my wonderful editor, had you know just put in a huge amount of time into working on it. Um, but the fact that we were going to lose three years of work compared to this young woman being in danger for her life, like, no, there's no contest. Um, but what, what was interesting to me was, at first I was like, how did I miss this? How did I not see this coming? How could I have been so blind? I was really sort of beating myself up about it. And then, little by little, I started to realize, no, actually, this is about a shift in a moment in history um, where it used to be that we as documentarians could promise people, whether they were political dissidents or they were talking about their father abusing them, we could say, we can protect you. This footage will not return to your town. It won't even return to your country. And that, could, that was true. We could actually sort of control where our images went. And that started to be over in the early 2000s. So 2005 is YouTube in the United States. It starts to spread all over the world. When I was in Afghanistan in 2009, you know, smartphones weren't really there, YouTube wasn't there, um, I believe. Um, maybe it even was and I didn't know it, but it didn't feel like anybody could see anything. But by 2012, there was no question that, you know, somebody who knew this young woman could see her and tell the Taliban about it, give her parents a hard time, or simply her reputation would be so tarnished she'd never be married, et cetera. And so that was really interesting to me because I said, oh, okay, we, we made a lot of promises for the last 25 years. And actually, maybe we can't keep any of our promises mm. anymore. And so it, it made me start thinking about all these different situations that have troubled me and ones that I can't get out of my mind and ones that haunt me and ones that I just want to really know what happened. Um, and so that's when I started reaching out to directors to say, can I see that footage and can I see that footage? And that, and that becomes camera person. That becomes camera person. In the course of going back and trying to pull footage from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, what did you learn about the state of independent film archiving efforts? Oh. <laughs> some people have some very nice closets. Some people don't remember where their storage units are. Some footage is completely gone. Um, much of it was on formats that, you know, I was like going back to DV tapes that had to be transferred. Um, you know, and I have the unfortunate, I, I mean, I just can't even believe that I've made a film of like the worst period in camera gear. <laughs> Basically, I started just at the end of 16 millimeter and then everything I shot was on standard def with integrated lenses. Um, you know, now anybody almost picking up their iPhone shoots more high quality footage than what I shot for the 25 years of my career. So it was just painful in many ways going back. But, but then I realized at a certain point, like, 
Images are in history. And, and yet, for someone who hasn't seen the film, I should step in and say here that there, there's a, a striking um, amount of very high-quality image-making taking place. Hmm. It's not the gear, it's the eye. Oh, is that so? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like everyone always asks in Q&As, like, what camera did you use? And it really, like, I always say back, you know, listen, it, you can be shooting on anything. It's just the way you are shooting, the care with which you're shooting. But it is true in a certain way the camera person proves that to me because I was shooting with gear that now people would say, like, oh, my God. Um, but But I do think what's also interesting is that you, you can see historical time in the quality of the footage and even in the format. You know, I have some four by three imagery in the film. Um, and and I, I sort of love that about the film, that it documents both the history of documentary filmmaking in a certain way, like through personal docs into social impact docs, you know, um, as well as talking about how the image, the, the sort of technical quality of images has changed. You know, getting back to what I was saying, what I was asking about the the state of independent film archiving, you know, it strikes me that in the world of independent film, everyone is always thinking about their next film and and not thinking about uh, you know hanging on to the material that they've that yeah. they've already shot. And in a way, it's a shame because they you know you build up a uh, a collection of footage over a couple decades. You're not thinking that maybe it's worth anything. Although I think like a fine wine, the more it sits, the more valuable it becomes. Yeah, I mean, I think it takes us all a long time as human beings to realize that we're in history. You know, we're in the present of our lives and we don't realize that we're gonna age and things are gonna change and sometimes change radically. You know, we don't, we don't quite get that for a couple of decades into our adulthood. Um, and so, you know, what I found in going back to footage, it's like a record of loss. Like there's all of these people who I loved and filmed with who've died already. Mm. And you, you know, um, in one case I filmed with this man, David Keaton, who I dedicate the film to. I filmed with him twice and he was the first man exonerated in the United States. And, um, you know, he, I, I Exoner exonerated. So he had he had been sent to death row, convicted of murdering a police officer, and he was not guilty. And he was the first person who he was discovered to be innocent on death row. Um, and uh, so he was released, and he lived in this small town in Florida, in Quincy, Florida. And I had filmed with him once on our film called Deadline, and then again on Katie Chevenier's film Election Day. I'd gone back to film, you know, if a former felon could still vote, that kind of story. So I'd filmed him uh, on the, you know, Election Day of Bush's second um, term, and we just really, we just really had this. We'd been through a lot together. I'd filmed with him a lot, and I, um, you know. I, in making camera person, I kept being like, oh, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna get to talk to David Keaton again. And so I got out the footage and I was going through it and trying to find the material that I wanted to use in camera person. And I remember I um, I had to pause the footage and go somewhere and leave it recording. And I just like, like I walked out of the room and his face was playing on the screen. And this was just this man who like, I really had had a deep connection with, hadn't talked to him in several years. And then two days later, his brother reached out to us and said that he died. 
And it was like the craziest thing of like going back and finding him alive on the screen and then, then he was dead. And now, you know, I can give all of that footage back to the family. Um, and so this sort of thing of death and life, how film actually can't really bring people back to life, but it can. Um, I mean, I've always loved in Veritov's Man with the Movie Camera how there's that one moment where there's a still image of an old lady and then it becomes a moving image of an old lady and it's really palpable, the difference between what a still, what a photograph does to make someone come back to life and what filmed material does. Um, and so that's sort of how we came to that moment in the film where my mother comes back to life. So th that's the the last person I wanted to ask you about in this film, which is your mother. Th throughout the film, your mother reappears. You're filming her uh, sometimes at a point in her life where she's losing her memory, um, which adds a, another layer to this idea of, of memory and hanging on to, to memory through film. Was it different filming your mother than, than filming strangers? Well... I mean, just to step back for a moment, you know, my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and I think there are many people who will see the footage in camera person and see it as a betrayal. You know, how could a daughter ever film her mother in that condition? And it was a betrayal. Um, my mother never wanted to be filmed by me, um, just in general. Like, when I became a camera person, um, she always sort of put off... Um, Anytime I'd say, oh, can I, I want to film an interview. She said, no, don't want to do it. Um, and I think in some ways that belongs to that older time when it was so uncommon to film someone that if you, you decided, oh, I'm going to go film you, it was often like, you're old and dying. I want to, I want to film you, right? I'm going to film the story of your life. It was like you would film the aging Holocaust survivor. You would film your grandparents to know what had happened. But it was sort of a sense of like, you're not going to be here anymore. That's why I'm filming you. So that might have been why my mom didn't want to be filmed. Um, I never asked her specifically, but there was one sort of key moment early on in her Alzheimer's um, when uh, we were driving in the car with my dad and we were reading um, Alice Munro's story, Friend of My Youth, out loud, which was very connected to my mom because it was a story about um, the, the West and a woman coming to be a teacher out in the West, and I thought my mom was going to love it. And when we ended reading the story, my mom said, don't you ever, ever dare make anything about me. And I was like, whoa. And, and, and it confirmed this feeling, this underlying feeling that I'd had that um, my mother really didn't want certain personal things revealed. Um, so, you know, to film, to film her when I did, at first it was, it was um, I was sort of sneaking it. Mm. Um, and it was like we're, we were going to visit the ranch where she'd grown up as a child, and I was like, oh, this is a home movie. But I would constantly, like when she'd see me filming her, I would turn the camera away. Um, and it, it felt like I was stealing something from her at the time, but it was in this place of knowing she wasn't going to be there forever, and I wanted some way to hold on to her. Um, and at first when we were making Camera Person, I didn't even tell the editor that 
I had any footage of my family. Hmm. Um, and I really, it was not the first thing I went to. And in many ways, I was not interested in this being a personal film. But as you get deeper into it and you talk about the real ethics of like, what are you asking people to do? You know, how are their lives in the line? The, the, the journalist in Yemen, how many weeks is he going to stay in prison if he's a part of this effort? The, you know, the person who lives in a hostile territory and you leave and they're, talking about the, you know, hostile forces around them. Are they going to be in trouble? For example, I'm going back to Sarajevo with the film and the family that is in the film, you know, they are Bosnians who live in Serb-dominated territory. And, you know, this is the way I think, like, film is alive. I don't know what camera person is going to mean for their lives moving into the future. Hmm. Will it put them in danger, in more danger than they already are, I don't know. And and those are the I don't know the true I don't knows of filmmaking. You can't pretend that this is a fixed thing or it stops or that the implications don't keep playing out. Um, it's very alive. But so I wanted to implicate myself uh, in the betrayal of my mother in some ways. Um, and yet also, I mean, I think it's really clear in the film you you see the love that is there. And when she's deeper into her Alzheimer's, she appears to be enjoying herself while being filmed. (laughs) So who, you know, where's the, where's the what in that, right? I want to thank Kirsten Johnson for her words, not getting stuck in her throat. This song is an inside joke between us. You can hear it in Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. That's a favorite of my six-year-old son and her twins. Kirsten's film Camera Person is released by Janice Films and is now playing in theaters. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, web designer Cross Strategy, Marketing Coordinator, Sarah Moto, Social Media Handlers, Jordan Smith, Alana Schreiber, and Executive Producer, Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you're in New York City this fall, you'll find me on Tuesday nights at IFC Center for Stranger Than Fiction, presenting a retrospective of documentaries by Jonathan Demme. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes. We'll be back next Thursday with a new interview. Until then, you can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.